Turn your Bibles to Jude. Let's pray and we'll dig into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We ask now, Lord, as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, we thank you that you've written it down for us. And Lord, just give us understanding. Give us wisdom in contending for the faith, for standing for the truth in the midst of a lost and a dying world. I thank you again for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. We continue to pray if anybody does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. I do want to say happy birthday to Valerie. I know you couldn't be here today. We love you. We miss you. Happy birthday. We can't sing to you because, well, we just can't, but we love you. All right, Jude. So let me give you a little background on this book. This is a letter written, and again, as it's being written, it's written by another one of Jesus's brothers, and Jude is... Uh, a man who writes this letter as the early church, as we've seen in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is facing great persecution from the outside and false teachers from the inside. And there's nothing new under the sun. It's, this is probably the least popular time to be a Christian in our country that, since our country was founded. Would you agree with that? But here's the reality. It's not anywhere near as bad as it is in most of the world. But at the same time, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be unashamed of the gospel. Jesus hung on a cross for us. We can make a stand for him. Amen? Amen. And so Judah's writing this letter, and he's writing it mainly to combat the false teachers. Again, we saw that first, second, and third John, and in second Peter, because it was a problem. And you may not think it's a big problem about false teachers, but if you, if you think that, it's only because maybe you go to a, you've been going to a church like this where they just teach the Bible. But do you know a majority of churches don't just teach the Bible anymore? It's become more entertainment. It's more about preaching to felt needs and teaching the whole counsel of God. And so the exhortation is to stand up against false teaching, and Jude will address that. I was trying to figure out an illustration that would help us to understand why the, the tone that Jude writes this from. You know, I'm a dad and a grandpa, and I can imagine if my kids were separated from me, my grandkids were separated from me, and a fire broke out between us, and I had a GPS, and I'm trying to direct them and how to get out of that fire and not die. And I'm giving them instructions, and then somebody else comes along and says, oh no, don't listen to him, we know a shortcut, come our way. And you know what, I would probably be yelling at the top of my lungs to make sure they listen to me so that they would not face destruction. That's how Jude's writing this letter, because we know, they know the truth, they have the word of God, they know, what, they know what the truth is, they know what the gospel is, they know that Jesus is a risen and living Savior who's triumphed over sin and death, and then you have false teachers come along and they've got a better way. And all the cults start that way. Joseph Smith thinks he has a better way. Muhammad thought he had a better way. All the false prophets that are out there teach something contrary to the word of God. And as they do, they're drawing people away from the, the way of escape, the way of eternal life into destruction. And so we should, I think to, to today, one of the things that breaks my heart, we're more worried about being politically correct than being biblically accurate sometimes. Amen? And we need to quit worrying about being you know, politically correct, because it's neither, it's political, but it's certainly not correct. Can I get an amen to that? And we want to speak the truth and do it in love, but do it with boldness. And so Jude's writing this letter with that heart of exhortation. And again, he knew the path of safety. There were false teachers in their midst, and he writes this letter to keep their eyes on the Lord. Grab your outline real quickly. You'll notice at the top of the outline, I'm giving an outline for the whole book, which is just one chapter. 
And then an outline for this morning's message. So first of all, really the purpose of this entire book is to contend for the faith. Jude is exhorting them and encouraging them to stand up for the truth when maybe nobody else will. So contending for the faith is the theme. And then he's going to talk about the false teachers. What do they look like and what is it that they teach? And you've heard me say this many times, it bears repeating, you know, when you're talking to somebody about the Lord, we can talk about 50 different things, but here's what we really need to get to. Who do you say that Jesus is? It all gets back to who is Jesus? When I talk to the Mormons at my door, they'll say, oh, we believe in Jesus and he's the son of God, but they also believe that he's the brother of Lucifer. Jesus and Satan are brothers. They believe that Jesus is a created being. He's not the creator of all things. They believe that the God, our heavenly father was a God, a man on another planet. He was so good, he got to be God of our planet. See, just because they use the same terms doesn't mean they're teaching the same gospel. Amen? Amen? And so we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we need to contend for the faith. And we need to understand who the false teachers are. Then it goes from description of the false teachers is defense against the false teachers. As believers, we should be able to, and again, we should not be arrogant. We should not be yelling and screaming. Uh, You know, when people yell, I just think that guy's wrong at a loud volume. Amen? We don't need to yell. We don't need to scream. We know the truth and we can share it in love. Amen? And that's what God's called us to do. And then we see the reason for contending for the faith and then how to contend. Now, in all the letters that you see in the Bible, an epistle is just a word for a letter, it typically starts off with what we believe and then how we should behave. All of Paul's epistles are certainly that way. And to some extent, we're going to see that. It begins off in the first 16 verses saying, this is what we believe. This is what the doctrine is. This is the truth. And then we'll see at the very end, then how do we behave? How should we respond? And again, the enemy, if he cannot get you to go to hell with him, he'll do everything he can to distract you from doing what God has called you to do. Well, I can't keep, you know, the Lord, I can never snatch him out of the Lord's hands. You're going to heaven and God will never let go of you. He's saying, so I can't take him to hell, but I want to render him ineffective for the kingdom of God until the Lord comes back. As believers, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. And the only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. Amen. So now the first seven verses we're going to look at this morning, down on the bottom of your outline, contending for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? How do we do that? How do we make a stand for the faith? Number one, by humbly reminding other believers of all the blessings that we have in Christ. It's good to be reminded. I say it to you guys over and over. Hey, by the way, we're going to heaven. Amen. Amen. And heaven is better than you think. And no matter how amazing you think it's going to be, it's going to be more amazing than that. No matter how great you think our God is, he's greater than that. And guys, no matter what's going, I don't care if gas is $57 a gallon, we're still going to heaven. Can I get an amen to that? See, the things that will draw us off track and distract us from what really matters, again, we're going to heaven. And we need to be reminded of the blessings we have in Christ. He's called us unto himself. We've been sanctified. That means being made holy and being uh, created more into the image of our Savior. And Jesus Christ has us, has us in his hands. He's never going to leave you. As believers, you'll never walk through anything alone ever again. Praise God for that. Amen? The world right now, people are struggling. Mental health is a real thing. We need to reach out to those people and love on them. Amen? But that being said, the main thing they need to understand that we all need to understand is the enemy will tell you you're alone and make you think you're of no value. And how do they determine the value of something and what someone's willing to pay for it? And how much did the Lord love you? He sent his son to suffer and die that you might have eternal life. Amen? 
So he'll never leave you alone and you are valuable to him. So the first thing we do in continuing for the faith is by humbly reminding other believers of our blessings in Christ, but then by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to stand for the truth. I believe there are divine appointments every day. We have opportunities every day in our workplace, uh, in the schools we may attend, in our neighborhoods, as we're in the grocery store, wherever we may be, that God is, wants us to be salt and light. And you know what? It's not as hard to share your faith as you think it is. The enemy gets you all psyched out, right? You just, oh, what if he asked where Cain got his wife? I'm not going to have the answer, so I don't know what to say, right? You know, <laughs> you know all, there's this panic about, uh, you know, what if they ask me a question and I have an answer to you? You know when you're witnessing, it's okay to say, I don't know? You know, I don't know, but let me read my Bible and I'll get back to you. Give me your phone number. Can I amen to that? There's an opportunity. And I want to just tell you, when you pray for divine appointments, it's amazing how naturally they happen. You guys know I have a full-time job and I have about 200 accounts and they all know I'm a pastor and I talk to everybody about the Lord on every service call I ever go on. And it's always really natural because I pray for it. And I'll just, we'll be talking, I'll say, hey, how can I pray for you? Hey, what are you doing for Christmas? How are you going to celebrate the birth of our Savior? Amen? Just simple opportunities. Just pray for divine appointments, but be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Realize that Christianity is a battleground, not a playground. Amen? And then finally, by continually pointing people back to the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by? So if you don't have enough faith, spend more time in God's Word. That's how we grow spiritually. We'll see three examples that are brought about in God's righteous judgment in dealing first with Israel, then the angels that fell from heaven, and then finally with Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's begin there in verse 1 of Jude, contending for the faith, first looking at by humbly reminding other believers of all the blessings we have in Christ. So this letter is being written by Jude to the early church, and he's going to begin by reminding them of how blessed they are in Christ. It says in verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now Jude, we know this repeatedly, some of you are new, but when they wrote letters in those days, they wrote them on scrolls, and so they would write who it was from at the top as opposed to the bottom of a letter like we do, so the person didn't have to unload, unroll a very long scroll to find out who was writing them. So Jude introduces himself at the beginning, his, and his name in Greek is, can also be Judas or Judah. Which one of those would you like? <laughs> Jude, Judah, or Judas, right? I've got a grandson named Judah. That we know the Judah campers at this church, right? Jude works. Judas, not so much. Can I get amen to that? But you know what? Jude, Jude, Judas and, and uh, Judah all mean the same thing. It means to be praised. And it literally means praise. When they marched through the wilderness, the tribe of Judah led the way because praise leads the way. It's praise that enters us into the presence of our Savior. So this is a very popular name at that time. And again, uh, there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabees, who just a century before had, was a leader of the Jewish resistance against Syria, and, and people were naming their kids after him. But again, the rest of the introduction tells us who this Jude is. See, more than what our name is, I do love, I, I named all my kids with biblical names, except my daughter who still punishes me for that a little bit. But my boys are John, Matthew, David, James, and Mark Andrew, right? And I love biblical names. When I was a kid growing up as David, I would hear about David and Goliath. And, you know, as a five-year-old, I'd be on the edge of my seat. So I kind of like that. But the name means, what means more than the name is who the person is, right? 
And so it says here, introducing himself, the first thing he said, refers to himself as is a bondservant. Now, if you've been coming to church here long, very long, you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. A bondservant is a slave by choice. What would happen in those days is if you had a huge debt that you could not repay, you would become an indentured servant to the person you owed the money to until you worked it off. And once you had paid your debt, or every seven years, they had a time when they were released from their debt. But what would happen is they'd be released from their debt, but maybe they had been living with their master and their family loved their master. And they would make a conscious choice that, yes, I know I can go free, but I choose not to. And I'm going to uh, be indentured as your servant for the rest of my life. And that's called a bond servant. And what they would do is they would go into the city square and they would take an awl and run it through the ear of the person and it would go into the piece of wood and blood would be shed, kind of a picture of Christ on the cross, amen? But what would happen is for the rest of their lives, they would be openly identified as they've chosen to serve their master for the rest of their life. Jude says, I am a bondservant who has chosen to serve my master, Jesus Christ, for the rest of my life, amen? And so that's what a bondservant is. It's a slave by choice. But you know what? It's easy to be a slave by choice if you have a great master, Amen? And you know what? We have the best master, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Who else do I want to follow? Who else would I want to serve? Who else has the words of eternal life? Amen? And so he says, I'm a bondservant. Now, what's interesting about this, we also know, he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But do you know he's also Jesus Christ's brother, just like James? Now, we know that from Scripture. And what's, you know, first of all, let me just settle a few things. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but if you get offended by the Bible, you need to be offended, so get offended. Can I get him into that? <laughs> Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Mary had other children. Mary blessed among women. Mary can't get you into heaven. Amen? We don't pray to Mary. We don't worship Mary. We don't pray to the saints. We don't worship the saints. You know, again, we're all saints. Who are the saints today? Raise your hand. You're either a saint or an ain't. Can I get an amen to that? All right, if you've been born again, you're a saint. If you haven't been born again, let's fix that before you leave the tent. Can I get an amen to that? Now, but notice he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus, and we know from the scriptures that none of his brothers believed in him until he rose from the dead. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus your whole life and you still don't believe he's the Messiah? But I've shared this before, and it's true. Can you imagine having Jesus for a brother? I think it would be amazing, but can you imagine if your parents said, why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> You'd fail miserably. The rest of the kids are like, I'll never be Jesus. Mr. Goody Two Sandals over there. I'll never be, you know, I'll never be good enough. So being compared to him, they just didn't believe until he rose from the dead. And then all his brothers and sisters believed. But, that when, you know, but here's what's important to me is notice that the relationship he talks about is being a bondservant to Jesus more than being a brother of Jesus because just being related to Jesus would not get him into heaven, but being his bondservant will. Amen? Amen? It's more than just who he's related to physically, but who he's given his life to spiritually, and that's what really matters. Amen? Speaking of Jesus, he said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not... His mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, which is Judah right here. And, it's, and I understand why he didn't go by Judas anymore. Kind of get him into that. Jude it works better. So he wrote, James wrote the book of James. He too focuses on the fact that he's a bondservant. And so too here we see the same with Jude. 
It says in John 7, 5, for even his brothers did not believe. And again, praise God that over time, isn't our God's a God of love and grace and mercy. And while we may not believe in the beginning, it's how we finish that really matters. Amen? Even though they grew up in the house with the creator of the universe, the great I am, God in human flesh, they still did not believe. And again, eventually, praise the Lord, after he rose from the dead, they, they believe. He says, with those in the upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all his brothers and sisters who did not believe, just 40 days later, or 50 days later, at Pentecost, they're all there waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So it didn't take very long once their brother, physical brother, their, their, savior, of, their savior of the world, rose from the dead, then they believed. And then they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them. It's not, you know, it's not too late to get right with God. Amen. It says, these all continued one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus with his brothers. This is in Acts 1.14. So his brothers were there. So while they denied him as children and growing up, they became followers of Jesus Christ and now authors that God uses in scripture. Again, that word for bond servant is doulos. And again, it's a slave by choice. And then he says there, and the brother of James. So James is also the brother of Jesus. So he mentions his brotherhood to James, but he mentions his being a bondservant to Jesus. And guys, that's what really matters. The blood of the cross uh, is more important than the blood that runs through our veins and the relationship by spiritual rebirth and the physical birth. And then he says, so he's one writing, Jude, bondservant, brother of James, his brother of Jesus. Then he says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Who is he writing this letter to? Believers. To those who are called, sanctified by God, and, and preserved by Jesus Christ. So the letter is written to Christians, not just a local church, but all Christians. And notice how he calls or describes Christians. First he says, the called. So our relationship with God originates with him, not with us. Can I get an amen to that? He desires that none should perish, no, not one. Salvation is offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. Again, people say, well, is it the sovereignty of God or the free will of man? The answer to that is yes, it's both. Can I get an amen? But God is the one who calls us, and then we have an opportunity to respond to him or to reject him. So he's talking about those who've been called by God. As we were wandering through this world lost, trying to fill the God-shaped vacuum with things that never would satisfy, career, money, possessions, relationships, sex, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, comfort, fame, follows on Facebook, whatever it is, right? That thing that you think is going to bring you comfort, we realize in the midst of all of that that it's empty. Not all those things are necessarily bad in the right context, but none of them will ever satisfy. Then in the midst of our understanding that something is missing, the Lord calls us. Often we have to come to the end of ourselves. We've tried it all. It didn't work. How many of you say that's part of your testimony? I tried it all. I tried this. I tried that. I did this. I did that. My flesh was never satisfied. I knew something was missing. Then the Lord called you. Your eyes were open, and now everything makes sense. Amen? Because we've been born again, we're new creations in Christ. So in the midst of that, something missing, he calls us. He offers salvation to us. Holy Spirit draws us unto himself. And again, when we hear the word of God, maybe we've read it or we've heard it a hundred times, but now finally it makes sense. And he's saying, so this letter is written to those who are called. We must not heed the call of man, 
but remain faithful to the call of God. And as Christians, we're not only called, then he says, right after called, he says, sanctified. And we talked about this a lot. So you're justified when you get saved, just as if you never sinned, right? Justified. This is when you, you recognize you're a sinner. By the way, if you didn't know it, you're a sinner. Amen? Bunch of tent full of sinners this morning. Amen? But as sinners, praise God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when you give your life to the Lord, and how do you give your life to the Lord? You may hear that. What does that mean? Well, it means you recognize that you're a sinner. That's first and foremost. As soon as you recognize your, you can't recognize your need for a savior until you recognize you're a sinner. So how many sins does it take to be a sinner? So have you ever told a lie? You're a sinner. You ever committed adultery? You ever lusted in your heart? You've ever been angry at somebody or taken God's name in vain? You've ever been anything more important than the Lord? You've ever dishonored your parents? We can go down the list. And we're not just sinners with one or two sins. Most of us have a bunch of zeros after that one. Amen? And we've sinned a lot. But here, the good news is that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So here's how you get saved. You recognize you're a sinner. One sin in heaven, we'd have earth part two. So there can be no sin in heaven because God is perfect and holy and cannot have sin in his presence. But we're all sinners. We've got a problem. Well, that's why Jesus came. He went to the cross of Calvary. He took your sin upon himself, my sin upon himself, and he suffered and died in our place that we might have eternal life. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So as you surrender your life, here's repentance means I'm walking in this direction. I want nothing to do with God. I'm living my life according to my flesh. Then the Holy Spirit opens my eyes. I recognize I'm a sinner. I see that the Lord is offering salvation as a free gift. And I say, Lord, I'm ready to surrender my life to you. Now that's when you're born again and you're justified just as if you never sinned. But then after you're justified, you're being sanctified. That word just means being set apart unto the Lord. God's doing a work in you. We're justified, then we're being sanctified till the day we're glorified. That won't happen until heaven. So he says to the called and the sanctified, those who are set apart to serve God, those who have been born again, those whose lives are being transformed, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit coming inside of you is down payment on heaven. If you don't know if you have the Holy Spirit, you probably don't. Because if you had him, he would comfort you and convict you. Amen? So he's saying to the people who are called and the people who are sanctified, the word in Greek there means to make holy, to purify to consecrate, to set apart for his work for the, for, from the world and unto the Lord. God didn't save us to put us on a shelf and leave us there. He saved us so we might become tools in the hands of our master, living a life that is not only promised eternity, but a life that has an impact on the world in the here and now. As Christians, we are called by God and set apart for his glory. But then he finishes that up and preserved in Jesus Christ. He not only saves us and sets us apart, but he holds on to us. And you know what? Isn't it good to know that the Lord holds you in his hands? The Bible talks about we are his treasured possession. There's a parable in scripture about the pearl of great price. And it talks about a farmer who goes and sells all that he has to buy one plot of land because he knows there's one pearl on that plot of land that's worth everything to, to, uh, to him. And you're that pearl. Jesus loves you so much. He'd rather die than live without you. He proved it on the cross of Calvary. And then he holds you in his hands. And you know when, the, and you've heard me use this analogy about Psalm 23. You know, when you're laying down in green pastures, you might forget where the shepherd is. You know, if you're laying down, job's good, money in the bank, everybody's healthy, marriage is wonderful, kids are all serving the Lord. By the way, how many days have you had that? But it's the same. <laughs> but when you're lying down in green pastures, it's like, where's the, where's the shepherd? He's around here somewhere. 
But when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you're hanging on to him with both hands. And that's why trials are given to us by the Lord so we won't cease to be desperate for him. You know, it's the greatest trials of life that make us the most desperate for the Lord. And it says to count all joy when to fall into various trials, for trials produce patience, the perfecting of our faith. And he says, look, you're called, you're sanctified, and God's holding on to you with both hands. And that's who he's writing this letter to. And these are words of encouragement to these early believers that are facing false teachers on the inside and persecution from the outside. Christians are being fed to lions. Christians are being thrown in jail. They're being set on fire. And he writes this letter to them to let them know, hey, with all that's going on, you're called by God. God's got his hand on you. You're being sanctified, molded into his image. He he preserves you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. As believers, we need to be encouraged in our faith every day. Amen? I can't imagine living this life without him. Who would want to live right now without Jesus? What a disaster. Amen? I've heard people say to me, it's hard to be a Christian. No, it's not. It's hard to be an unbeliever. Amen? It's not hard to be a Christian. Well, I'm not saying there aren't challenges in being a Christian. There are. But if you didn't know the Lord, you'd be wearing seven masks still sitting outside, right? I mean, people are fearful. Why are they afraid? Because they don't know where they're going to spend eternity. And if I didn't know the Lord, I'd be scared too. But God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind because we know we're going to spend eternity and you can't threaten me with heaven. Can I get amen to that? Heaven's better. That's where we're going. And praise God for that. He preserves us. He protects us. Nothing we've earned. Nothing we can take credit for. And then he says there in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Again, these are words that can get so Christianized we forget what they mean. Mercy is an amazing thing. You know what mercy is? It's It's not being given something you deserve. Boy, thank you for mercy. Amen? What do we all deserve? Half the people know and the other half are like, really? Yeah. (laughs) We all deserve hellfire. You know, hell was not created for man. It was created for the devil and it's people that choose to follow him that end up there. Amen? Hell is a place of separation from Almighty God for all eternity. And we deserve that because we're all sinners. But you know what? God shows us mercy. And while we were yet sinners, again, Christ died for us. As Christians, we're not only called and sanctified, but we're the recipients of God's greatest blessings, mercy, peace, and love. Again, God in his mercy does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gave our punishment to his own son on the cross of Calvary. It says in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he was wounded for our transgression and was bruised for our iniquities. He was willing to pay the price as if he lived your life so you could be rewarded as if you lived his. What a great and awesome God we serve. Amen? Then right after mercy is peace. And peace, because of Christ's work on the cross, we can enjoy peace. Now, true peace is not the absence of war. It's right standing before Almighty God. You can be in the worst place, going through the greatest trial, and be at total peace, when somebody else could be up in the palace, having everything the world has to offer, and have no peace. One of the great examples of that is Daniel. If you remember when Daniel was in the lion's den, Darius got, got uh, tricked into throwing him into the lion's den. And then Darius is up all night in the, t- in the palace panicking and has no peace. And Daniel's in the lion's den. What's he doing? He's sleeping. He's at peace. Because it's better to be in the lion's den with Jesus than in the palace without him. Amen? 
And here's that. So we have peace, not based on our circumstances, but based on, not based on who we are, but whose we are. The one that we belong to brings us peace. Amen? Right standing before Almighty God. Don't panic when things are in the world around us fall apart. The unsaved person, it tells us in Romans 8, is that war with God and cannot please him. But when we trust him as savior, the war ends and we receive his peace. There used to be these bumper stickers that said, N-O Jesus, N-O peace, K-N-O-W Jesus, K-N-O-W peace. No Jesus, there's no peace. No Jesus, and you will know peace. Amen? And that's the truth. Then notice after peace, the word there is love. I'll give you one guess what that word is in Greek. What do you think? It's agape. So there's... M- Many words in the Bible for love. We don't have time to go into all of it, but eros or Aaron love is where we get the word erotic and it is a selfish, uh, what can you do for me love? It's really not love. It's, it's, it's a relationship of convenience. As long as you do for me, I'll keep you around. When you stop doing for me, I'll get rid of you and replace you with someone younger and prettier or someone with more money, right? And that's that mentality in the world. That's why people get married and they look for that person to satisfy everything. And when they don't, they cut them loose and find somebody else. Well, that's Eros love, agape love. Eros takes, agape gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, agape love doesn't judge whether the other person deserves it or is worth it. You love them unconditionally, even when they're not being very lovable sometimes. Amen? Can every married person in the room say Amen. Okay. I've been a knucklehead before. My wife continues to love me and I'm thankful for that. But God, God's love for us is unconditional. He doesn't love you because you're perfect. He loves you because he's perfect. Amen. And the cross is God's demonstration of his love, but his love is not experienced until the spirit comes in the heart of a believer. As born again, believers were called by God. We're set apart for his glory. We're preserved by Christ. We're held on to by him. We're recipients of the greatest blessing, his mercy, not giving us what we deserve. His peace, no longer walking in war, but walking in peace. And then his love is inexhaustible, unending, unconditional, selfless, agape love. And then notice what he says, be multiplied to you. The only thing better than those three things is having them multiplied in your life. We can have more peace. We can experience more of God's love. Amen? We can understand more about his mercy, and we're so thankful. So the first thing he does in writing this letter to the early church is he is encouraging them. So have you responded to his call? Have you been set apart unto him? Does he hold you in his hands? Have you experienced his mercy, his peace, and his love? If not, what in the world are you waiting for? Can I get an amen to that? Let today be the day of salvation. So point number one, contending for the faith, by humbly reminding others of all the blessings we have in Christ. Guys, we're called, we're sanctified, we're preserved in Christ. He called us unto himself. He's made us holy. You should be encouraged by that. Amen? Point number two, by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to stand for the truth. Look at verse three. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our own common salvation, I find it necessary to write exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So as he's writing this letter, many of the commentators believe that we know that while men wrote the letters, it's the Holy Spirit that writes it. They're just tools in the hands of the master. But as he sat down to write the letter, his biggest concern was, you know, to talk about our common salvation. Look, we're saved. We're going to heaven. Praise God. And he starts off that way. But then he says in this verse, but in the midst of that, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. 
Now, keep in mind the context. Christians are being put to death. Getting baptized in those days could be a death warrant. Anytime you made a public proclamation, it could cost you your life. And he's writing this letter to them in the time when it's, when it's so uh, difficult to be a Christian from that, from that perspective, that your life is on the line. And then he's encouraging them, stand up for the Lord. Yeah, it may cost you everything. It certainly cost him everything when he sent his son. Notice again, he starts off with beloved. It's an expression of strong love and affection. And then he says, well, I'm very dearly out of his deep love and diligence. He's writing to him. Jude had set out to write them from his heart, a serious intent with great determination. The initial subject again was their common salvation. Now common is not cheap or something everybody possesses. Now that's what it means when you say something is common. When I was a kid, I collected baseball cards. And they had, they, had, they had cards that were just called commons. And that what that meant was they were of no value, really. They were just cards, and then you had the cards that were of value, and the rest of them were just called commons. And so you even see advertising. I've got 500 common cards for $2 if you want them, right? So of no value. That's not what the word common means here. The word here, it means that we have this in common he means we share a common truth. We're in a community with one another based on our common salvation. When we have Jesus in common, we have everything in common. Amen? Almost every week we have new people here at church and it takes, 30, it takes five seconds to know if they know the Lord or not. You start talking to them and when you have the Lord in common, it's brotherhood. Amen? We're family immediately. You know, so, oh, I'm, I'm just here for the first time. How long have you been? Oh, I've been saved. Man, you're hugging people after 10 seconds. Amen? Because we have a common bond that we have in Jesus Christ. Based on our common salvation that we are each saved, redeemed, forgiven the very same way that we're going to spend eternity together in heaven. But then he goes from saying, beloved, I'm diligent to write to you. But then he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and all delivered to the saints. I wanted to write you this other letter, but I'm stirred up based on what's going on in the world and the Holy Spirit in regard to the current status of things going on around us. So it's a content earnestly for the faith. Here's the theme and purpose of this whole letter. That's why I, I titled the message this morning, Contending for the Faith. He said, I'm writing you to contend for the faith. Jesus didn't save you so you could go sit up on a mountain and chant till he gets back. Amen? He didn't ask you to go sit on the sideline somewhere and pull your get out of hell free card on judgment day. Where did, I put that somewhere. Where is it? Okay, here it is right? And there's this mentality sometimes as Christians that we've arrived. Look, we're all continuing to grow. We're all in that sanctification process till the day that we get to heaven. The word to contend earnestly in Greek means to agonize. It speaks of the agony exerted by an athlete in a contest or a soldier in a battle. It speaks of a struggle being ongoing and continuous. It's been said that Christianity is not a cruise ship to heaven. It's a battleship anchored at the gates of hell. Amen? It's a spiritual battle that we fight every day and got to put our flesh to death and we're looking for opportunities. People are, are, are separated from us. The fire is surrounding them. We know the way out. We must not keep it to ourselves. Amen? We must be unashamed of it and speak the truth. The letter was to be one of rejoicing in their common salvation that we're all saved the same way and now God stirred his heart that we need to point people to the only way to contend for the faith. You've heard me say this a hundred times, one more won't hurt. Buddha's dead. Hare Krishna's dead. L. Ron Hubbard of the Church of Scientology, that's not a church, it's not science either, so we need to pray for them. Can I get an amen? 
L. Ron Hubbard proclaimed to be God in the book Dianetics, and then he died, okay? Um, all the false gods in the world, all Confucius, all these people that people follow, they're all dead. We can dig up their bones. Jesus Christ has arisen a living Savior. He was triumphed over sin and death. I've been in his grave. He's not there. He's risen. We serve the true and living God. Amen? And most of, those God, most of those false prophets don't even claim that they know a way to God. Buddha died saying, I have no hope. Muhammad said, I don't know what's going to happen. This is what they're saying at the end of their life. You want to follow somebody who's clueless? You want to follow somebody who doesn't even know, has not triumphed over sin and death? Or follow the true and living God who created you in his image? Amen? But as you begin to write this letter of rejoicing, he again is going to encourage and exhort them to stand up and contend for the faith. I would much rather encourage the saints than declare war on false teachers, but the Spirit of God has changed his mind to write this battle against the forces of evil all around us. The Bible tells us that Satan is a roaring lion seeking who may devour. When the enemy is in the field, the watchmen dare not go to sleep. Amen? So what are Christians to contend for? The faith. The faith. Again, faith, the, true, the truth of God's word that has been delivered to us. Jude was exhorting his generation as I now exhort ours, God's word, and the good news of the gospel have been placed in our hands. Do you know that every saint that has gone before us contended for the faith while they were here, but they're all in heaven now, and it's our turn. Amen? It's our turn. The word of God is in our hands. It's for such a time as this, we've been placed upon the earth. We're the ones that are to be salt and light to this generation. The apostles aren't coming back. The, the fathers of the faith, the Charles Haddon Spurgeons and D.L. Moody's, all these people, Billy Graham, they're in heaven. And now it's our turn. And what are we going to do with what God has placed in our hands? Amen? We're to live out our faith by living holy and uncompromising Christian lives, giving all credit to the Lord who changed us. Again, as Christians, we're not sinless, but we should sin less. Amen? Because the closer we get to the Lord, the more we want to live like him and the more we will become like him. We'll never be God. There is a God. Two undeniable facts. There is a God and you're not him. Amen? But we will live more and more like him. The truth of God's word has been delivered to us. I've referred to this a few times. I know a lot of you have seen it. There's a video that pops up from time to time online. And it's a bunch of Chinese students. And they come in and they deliver these Bibles. And these, they have never had a Bible of their own. And they just start weeping. And they're holding on to the Bible. And you see them just shuddering and crying. And they're kissing this book because they've never had one before. And now they have the word of God. And the sad part is, I think for us, it can grow so common. We, have, we might have 25 Bibles in our house. And we, maybe we're not reading any of them. We need to appreciate God's word, amen? That's been delivered to us. We're not standing up for a personal opinion or a political ideology, but the one and only truth that can save the lost and sinful man. We're to bring the word of God to a lost and a dying world. The truth was once delivered unto the saints, and that's us. Again, you're either a saint or an ain't, and if you're a saint, God wants to use you for his glory. Our call is not to self-righteously win an argument, but to share the hope that lives within us to a lost and a dying world. When he says contending earnestly, again, that word agonize, you're to fight for this with every ounce of strength within you because this is a battle we cannot afford to lose. When we stand before God, you've heard me say this too, is we're going to think about, we're going to look back on our life. And when we look back on our life, God's going to show, first of all, if you're born again, you won't go to the great white throne judgment. That's only for unbelievers who've rejected the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
But we will have the Bema Seat judgment where the Lord will look upon us and see, these are the gifts I gave you. These are the opportunities I gave you to be used by me. And how did you do with that? And we're all going to fall short. But there will be, we will be given rewards if we have been faithful. Now, most of us would say, I don't need any rewards. As long as I get to heaven, I'm good. Anybody feel that way? But he says, if you, but he says you should desire these rewards. So we should desire them. We should be faithful to them. Oh, not only that, you know the number one reason I share my faith with others? There's two reasons. Because I love people, but more only because I love God. Amen. And when you love the Lord, when you love somebody deeply, don't you want to introduce them to everybody? Amen? I, most of you know I have a full-time job. We, used to, we didn't even have offices anymore. Zoom got rid of that. But I, I would love it when my kids were younger and my wife would come in the office, or even when they're older, and introducing my family to my coworkers because I love them. And because I love them, I'm, I'm proud of them in a way, right? I want them to know this is the, the woman I've married, been married to for 37 years. This is my beautiful, this is my grandchild. I love them, right? And I love to introduce them. But you know who I love more? I love the Lord more. And how can we keep it to ourselves? Amen? And the one thing about it is, she's my wife, nobody else can have her. But you can have my Savior too. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> Right? He's, he's amazing. And by the way, he loves you too. And you can be saved too. And you can be born again too. And he went to the cross for you too. How can we keep it to ourselves? We have a responsibility to deliver the truth to others that has been delivered to us. The word contend there again. You're, you are called, not just the pastor, but all of us are called. And that says once and for all delivered to the saints, you stand for the uncompromising truth of God's word. If you are the only person in a room full of a thousand people that had questions about the Bible, how would you do? Would you be able to answer them? Would you be able to engage somebody that you meet on the street that wants to know? What if somebody walked up to you uh, this afternoon and just said, hey, you know what? My life's a mess. I hear you're a Christian. What do I have to do to be a Christian? I hope you can tell them. I hope you know how to share that simple truth with them and point them to the Lord. And it says there, again, delivered to the saints. It's been given to us not to hold on to it for the rest of our lives, but that we might share it with a lost and a dying world, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which is once and all delivered to the saints. God's put in our hands. We have the answer. This is the teacher's edition. It's got all the answers in it. Amen? Remember when the one kid in math class got the teacher's edition and had all the answers in the back of the book, and they all went to his house and did homework and learned absolutely nothing, but you had all the right answers? Well, guys, this is the teacher's edition, and we learn what the right answers are. Amen? Verse 4. Here's what it says. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa. So now he's telling them why they need to contend for the faith, because here's what has happened. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. You know, churches that don't study the word thoroughly will get duped by somebody who's preaching another gospel if they're not careful. Amen? They'll hear something else, and it sounds kind of right, and because they don't study the word for themselves, then they, they get duped and drawn away by a lie. And he's telling them, this is what's already happening. They've come into the local church. They've crept in, not even noticed. False teachers, and notice how they came in. Again, they didn't wear a danger false teacher name tag, amen? They didn't come in with a, you know, horns going out of their head and holding pitchforks. You know, they come in, and typically this is what happens. I've been a pastor 34 years, and I've seen it. What will happen is somebody will come in. They think they've got another way, 
And, and a lot of them, they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And they'll come into a church and they'll usually like to go to the new believers class. So they'll find somebody that's young in their faith. They'll invite them over to dinner and teach them a new way. And you know what that is? It's called a wolf in sheep's clothing. Amen? It's a false teacher. And so as believers, we need to know what we believe so we can recognize the counterfeit when it comes in. It crept in means to slip in secretly by a side door. The enemy knows one wolf within a flock can do more damage than a thousand on the outside. False teachers are even in pulpits all over America today. And how do we know the difference? There's so, many, so much nonsense. It frustrates me, but it stirs me up. There's one thing about social media, more access to everything and the bad thing about social media is you have more access to everything. Amen? And you see these guys coming on saying they're pastors and they're preaching this. There's this guy that just preached a message that Jesus was transgender. My head was about to explode. And you're like, what in the world? Just because, you know, it's the bathroom wall of America. You can write anything you want, say anything you want, and people will start to believe it. Amen? It's nonsense. But you know what? It comes into the church. And if, you know, and, and you'll hear people preaching nonsense and people amening them into the ground. And that's why I don't put the verses up here. I want you to have this in your lap to make sure what I'm teaching is the truth. Amen? That I'm not making this stuff up. Hold me accountable. It says, who were long ago were marked out for condemnation. While they were unnoticed by men, they were not unnoticed by God. God knows who the false prophets are. Amen? Would you know if there was somebody who was trying to drag your kids into that fire? You would mark that guy out and never forget who he was ever. Amen? And you would keep him away. And this is the heart from which this is written. Like, like, look, there's those who are in, within the church and they're trying to drag people away from the truth. He'd already prophesied they were coming. They might fool men, but they won't fool God and they will face his righteous judgment. So how do we recognize them? By not being fooled by their robes or uh, what they may wear or the titles after their names or the little white collar that they have up, up here, right? And they walk around with a big robe on and wearing a hat, looks like, a, you know, right? And they, they you know, they, they, they get called great names and people bow to them. First of all, we bow to no one but Jesus Christ. Amen. Period. Amen. We bow to no one. There's only room for one celebrity in Christianity. His name's Jesus Christ. We don't worship men, we worship God. Amen? But you'll have these men, oh, there was a guy down in Florida that said he was the second coming of Jesus Christ and thousands of people were following him. Then he died and he didn't get back up. So he's not Jesus. Can I get him into that? But the thing is that there's all these false teachers that come around and people get fooled by the counterfeit because they don't know the real. Because they don't know the truth. You've heard it, the, the, I don't know if they still do, but tellers used to learn about money when they would get hired and they would just have them handle real money and look at it and feel it. And they never gave them false money, just real money. So then when false money came, they knew as soon as they touched it, oh, that's not right. Because that doesn't feel like the real money, amen? And guys, if we know the truth, no one has to teach us about the lies because if we know the truth, we'll recognize the lie, amen? And that's exactly what he's saying is look, they're ungodly men, they're irreverent, they're wicked, who claim to know God and even speak for God, but their actions directly contradict the word of God. There's 15 qualifications for a pastor in the Bible. 14 speak of character, one speaks of gifting. The most important thing we should see in believers is men and women of godly character. Reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one's watching. Amen? And that's who we really are, is who we are when no one's watching. 
Instead of holy and reverent men who walk in the fear of God, they're unholy, irreverent men who have no fear of God. And note their message. Notice what it says. They turn grace into lewdness. Now remember, we've talked about the fact that the main group was the Gnostics. And here's what they taught. Your spirit and your flesh are two different things. Your flesh is sinful, but your spirit is good. If you give your spirit to God, you can live in your flesh any way you want because your spirit is saved and your flesh is wicked. They also taught that Jesus only came in the spirit because the flesh is wicked. So what they taught was give your life to Jesus and go be a whoremonger. It's fine. Give your life to Jesus and live a life of drunkenness and, and immorality and just go live that life. And so they taught they turned the grace of God into lewdness. What they were saying is grace is freedom to sin. It's not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Amen? They taught that, well, as long as you have God's grace, you can live like the devil and you'll still go to heaven. But the Bible tells us by your fruit, they shall know you. Amen? We don't go to heaven because of good works, but good works are fruit of the fact that we've been saved. Amen? So the Gnostics had taught this false gospel. So he's writing this letter to them and they claimed... Again, your body and your spirit were separate things. And the truth is, is it, it's all about if our, if our spirit is saved, our flesh will change. Amen? What I mean by that? The way we live, and we've we got to put the flesh to death every single day. Then it says at the end, they deny the only God, Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's where it is. This is what I said at the beginning. They deny who Jesus is. All the cults make man more and Jesus less. They all do it. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is Michael the archangel. And he's not God and he didn't die on the cross. And he's not the son of God. And he did not raise from the dead. That's making Jesus less. Amen. The Mormons believe, again, that Jesus and Satan are brothers. They believe that Jesus is a created being, not the creator of all things. They believe that, that men, that the God of our planet used to be a man on another planet. And if you're a good man on this planet, you'll be, get to be God of your own planet. And I would hate to live on any planet where I'm God. How about you? <laughs> Amen. But it feeds the flesh to say, well, you're going to have 50 wives just popping out babies for you to populate your planet, and they're all going to worship you. And then you wonder why all these guys are signing up to be Mormons, right? It's a very pride-driven, it's the same thing that got Satan thrown out of heaven. Amen? So what do they all do? They make Jesus less and man more. So here's some undeniable facts about Jesus that if you reject any of these, you're not a Christian. You ready? His deity, Jesus Christ is God, period. Amen? If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. His authority, he is above all, amen? It's, we submit to him and him alone. Do you know he spoke the stars into the sky? Do you know that he created all things? He's not created, he's the creator. His virgin birth, well, it's not that important. Yes, it is, because do you know you get the DNA from your father, amen? And he came into this world sinless because he came through the blood of the father, Amen? The atoning work on the cross of Calvary. If you reject the cross, you don't know Jesus. You reject Jesus, you're not a Christian. If you deny the resurrection, I saw a guy in, just said, well, the resurrection's not that important. Are you kidding me? Paul said, if he is not resurrected, we are the most pitiable of all men. Amen? I've been to the tomb four times. I walked inside of it. He's not there. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? 
We can go on and on. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. There's no other path. There's no other way. There's no other answer. It's not Confucius for these people, and Muhammad for these people, and Buddha for these people. It's Jesus for all people, and he is the only way to heaven. Amen? If we deny any of that, we're not Christians. But so many today want God's grace to allow them to continue in their sinful behavior without consequences. They want heaven, but refuse to give God his rightful place in their lives. You can't have heaven without Jesus. Amen? You cannot have access to the Father without Jesus. There is no hope in this life without Jesus. The easiest way to identify a false teacher is to say, what do you say about Jesus? Amen? They deny any of that, they're false prophets. Final point. Secondly, by being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to stand for the truth, it's a great exhortation. Now he's going to give, pointing them, by continually pointing people back to the word of God. He's going to give three examples of behavior of false teachers, that false teachers brought on, of people living outside of God's will, and then the righteous judgment that came. Let's begin there in verse 5. It says there in verse 5, but I want to remind you. So what's he reminding them of? What the Bible says, amen? What things that took place, all these are in the Old Testament. I'm gonna remind you of things that you know about. And that's another reason I'm repetitive because the Bible's repetitive. They're constantly reminding us because we forget, amen? He says, I remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So the first group he's going to talk about is the children of Israel. Now remember, just quickly, how did they get delivered out of bondage in Egypt? They were in, they were in bondage in Egypt for 430 years. Why? Because they had rejected God. They had turned their back on God and God allowed them to be in bondage. Then God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses spoke for God. And I love that God chose to use a stuttering shepherd. Amen. A guy who spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, then 40 years finding out he was nobody, and then 40 years proving God can use anybody. Amen? And so Moses, God brings him, and they bring the plagues upon Egypt. They won't let the people go. And finally, it's the last of the plagues that got them to let the people go. And what plague was that? Passover, angel of death. Amen? And so what did they do? They had to take the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, and the angel of death would pass over, and they were delivered out of bondage. Now, I love it. They had to bring a lamb in. They, they looked at the lamb for four days to make sure it wasn't, um, you know, wasn't, it was imperfect and had to be perfect. It couldn't be, have any disease or any flaws. And they would, after four days, it would slip the, the, the lamb's throat, take the blood, and in the shape of a cross, the angel of death passed over, and they were delivered out of bondage. And then when they were delivered out of bondage, remember uh, Pharaoh's army chased after them because they realized who's going to make all the bricks now? Who's going to be building stuff for us? They went after him. And do you remember that their back was against the Red Sea? Moses holds up his hands. The Red Sea is parted. They passed through the Red Sea and all of Pharaoh's people did the dead man float, right? <laughs> right? If you just, that's Sunday school song, okay? That's old school. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Okay. <laughs> Let my people go, right? Amen. But then they went and it was only 11 day journey to get to the Jordan. And they were going to be able to go in to the land of promise if they would just obey God. He'd already told them, I've given you the land. And when they got to the Jordan River, 12 spies went in. And two spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, it's just what God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's go. 
And the other 10 came back, oh, no, what are we going to do? They're going to kill us. Oh, no. We're just grasshoppers compared to them. We're all going to die. We can't do it. And so they, listened. so they listened to the 10 men instead of listening to the two prophets. Amen? And so what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they all dropped dead in the wilderness. See, God had a plan for their life, and they were faithless, and they missed out on what God had for them. And they died in the wilderness instead of entering into the land of promise. See, the cross, Passover is a picture of the cross being born again. I believe the Red Sea is a picture of baptism, right? As they entered through the water. And then when they got to the Jordan, be that spirit-filled life and entering into all that God had for them. And sadly, a lot of Christians are stuck between Egypt and the land of promise. You've been delivered out of bondage, but you haven't stepped into all that God has for you. And so he's exhorting them here first that they're, they have were destroyed, talking about the children of Israel. And why were they destroyed? Because of their lack of faith. The Passover, the deliverance, they'd seen the hand of God. They saw, didn't they see all the, all the plagues come? Saw them all. They saw God's mighty hand. They saw the Red Sea part. They were walking through the middle of the Red Sea on dry land. They saw the pillar of fire. They heard God speak from Mount Sinai. He spoke and the whole earth shook. And they were like, you go talk to him, Moses, because we can't take it. And they saw all that God had revealed to them and they still didn't step in. And he said, look, because of that, God brought righteous judgment. Notice it says, they, afterward, they destroyed those who did not believe. You know what? There is no excuse for us not believing. Amen? Uh, point number two here, example number two, the angels that fell from heaven. It says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness for the judgment of of the great day. The danger of unbelief and the danger of rebellion, the angels had dwelt in heaven. They had seen Almighty God face to face. They had been around the throne worshiping him. They knew who God was, had been revealed to them clearly, but sadly, some time went by and there was one angel who the Bible describes as the most beautiful of all the angels who allowed his pride to get to him. What's his name? Lucifer, Satan. And what did he do? I will be like the most high. I will be, I will sit on the throne. I, I, I. I is the middle letter of sin and pride. And he had a problem with both. And you know what he did? He got a third of the angels to go with him and God cast them out. And now they're called demons, right? And so they're going to spend eternity in hell separated from almighty God because they were given the truth of who Jesus was. And instead of following him, they wanted to be on the throne themselves, especially Lucifer. So the angels who had dwelt in heaven had fellowship with God, but when Lucifer, the most beautiful of the angels, chose to rebel, they went with him. And again, that's why they want you to go with them. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He knows he's going to hell for eternity, and he wants you to join him. And he will tempt you with things you are tempted by. First of all, let me say this. Satan gets too much credit by some and not enough credit from others. What I mean by that is Satan is not the opposite of God. He's toast compared to God. He's a created being, and he's going to hell. Amen? So we don't, have to, we don't have to be so fearful of him. Let God take care of him. But then we have other people that act like there's no spiritual warfare going on around us, and that's absolutely not true. There is spiritual warfare that goes on all around us. Now, Satan cannot be everywhere at once. He's not omnipresent. He cannot read your mind. He doesn't know everything about you. He doesn't. Him and his angels, I don't know how many demons there are, a third of all the heavenly hosts. It's going to be a big number. But, they do, but he does know human nature, and he does know the things that will tempt you, and he can see and try, and Satan will always tempt you with something that you want. 
Satan cannot tempt me with Brussels sprouts. He can leave them in my driveway for 10 years. I ain't going near it. Now, tri-tip in the backyard, I might have a problem, amen? The point is that Satan knows what your weakness is, and he's going to tempt you, and he wants to do one thing. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your walk with God. He wants you to distract you from what God's called you to do. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy our country. And here's the good news. I read the end of the book, God wins and Satan's a defeated foe. Amen? But understand that God brought consequences upon the devil. And notice what it says. He will be under chains, under darkness for the great day. False teachers who use their false and rebellious words to try to stir us up make us dissatisfied with our current state. And that's exactly what Satan did, didn't he? Hey, man, you know, it's just better. And you know what Satan always does? He always tries to get people to doubt the word of God. What did he say to Eve? Did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree? Yeah, God did really say. It's actually the only thing he said. Be fruitful, multiply, and just don't touch that tree. It just goes to show our nature, Amen. We want to blame it on Adam and Eve. You would have ate of that tree too. Amen? <laughs> Eventually. Finally, last one, as we close, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what it says. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. Now, here's another thing that I see online all the time especially those that, are, that think homosexuality is fine and sexual immorality is fine, they try to say that the reason God wiped out Sodom was because they lacked hospitality. <laughs> Quickly, here's what happened. Job had settled in Sodom. Abraham and Job had to part ways after they came out of Egypt they were both very wealthy. Job was hanging on to his stuff. And Abraham said, you pick one side, I'll pick the other. And he looked at the land towards Sodom. and It was beautiful. So we see him camping outside of Sodom, then camping inside of Sodom. Then he became a leader inside Sodom. And then what happened was the angels came to visit. And when the angels came, they were going to sleep out in the city square. And Lot, Lot came out and went, no, no, it's a bad idea. You, come to my house. you know why? Because anybody who was outside after dark, the mob would come and rape them. So this was, this was Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember what happened, that they went inside the house and all the men from town came and were banging on the door to Lot's house saying, send out those two new men and we want to know them carnally. We want to rape them. And then what did Job do instead? He sent his virgin daughters out. Talk about God's grace. Are you kidding me? My daughters and grand... You, you, I'm, I'm dying way before that happens, Amen. But the point was that they were living such an ungodly life where sexual immorality was the thing that ruled and reigned. And here's the reality. We can, make, we can talk about Sodom, but we're not far from it. Most of you know I sell advertising on the, a lot of it's on the internet. I sell a lot of advertising and software and all this stuff. But the nine of the top 10 sites on the internet are porn sites. Pornography is the highest generated revenue of anything on the internet. It is a window into hell. You can, and, and, and you know what? We need to pray that that gets shut down, amen? But what it does is it's bringing the ungodly right into your house. A man who would never go to a strip club because somebody would see him, who would never walk into a room and, you know, and, and have other people look at him or, or even go to a, a liquor store and buy a, a dirty magazine because he'd have to give somebody money. But now if he can do it in anonymity and nobody sees him, all of a sudden it's through the roof. 
And God hates it. Just remember, every time I hear about it, I, I just want to pray for the young women. That are, I had an interview with somebody for a newspaper article years back, and then at the end of it, she told me, can you pray for my daughter? She's caught up in the porn industry. I can't even imagine. But Sodom and Gomorrah had turned themselves over to, you know, do as thou will. And that the, that's the chant of Satan, the church of Satan. Whatever you want, do that. And that's what they were doing. And then God gave them the opportunity. He said, if you can find 10 righteous, I'll save that city. And Lot couldn't get 10. He started at 100, then 50, and down to 10. And there weren't 10 righteous. And God brought righteous judgment and just turned it into an ash heap. Now, again, first of all, I want to say this. Do we love everybody? What's the answer? Does God desire that everybody would be saved? What's the answer? That being said, we've got to stop apologizing for sin and making it less than it is. Amen? Not just sin in everybody else's life, but more importantly, sin in my life. Holiness for me, grace for everyone else. Amen? But because of their turning themselves over to debauchery, and you know what happens? Is sin is becoming so prevalent. You know, I've done, I don't know, a couple hundred weddings, and when I do pre-marriage counseling, I'm just being transparent. It's rare when that couple has remained sexually pure, even when they're both Christians. And that is a sad state of affairs. Amen? But it happens because we become more like the world and less like the Lord. Amen? We're following the world's example instead of following God's. And he's saying, look, to contend for the faith, take them back to the word and show them what happens when they step away from the truth. When Israel doesn't step out in faith, God brings destruction. When the angels become prideful and rebellious. God cast them out of heaven. And when Sodom became driven by the flesh, God brought righteous judgment. Now look, he's a God of love and grace and mercy. And you can take a million steps away from God and thankfully it's only one step back. Amen? No matter how far away you are from him, you can draw unto him. So in closing, but how do we contend for the faith? By hubbling, reminding other believers. I want to remind you that God loves you. Amen? He's a gracious God, and he's called you and sanctified you. By being sensitive, pray for opportunities to share the hope that lies within you. And then finally, by continually pointing people back to the word of God. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. You are a great and an awesome God. And Lord, now as we go to this time of communion, we ask, Lord, that we would do this in remembrance of you, the greatest act of love in all of human history. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord, may today be the day of salvation. So communion is for believers. We're going to pass the elements right now. They're going to play a song. I know we've gone over a few minutes, but I, what, what I encourage you to do is just take the elements, hold on to them. We'll take them together. And three things I want to encourage you to do. Look back to the cross. The Bible says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the greatest act of love in all of human history on the cross of Calvary. But also look within yourself and, and Lord, do I need to repent? Where am I at with you, Lord? As I take this cup and this bread and remember the cross, Lord, make this a time of repentance. It's just between you and him. And then finally, looking forward, he says, the next time I take this with you, Jesus said, I will take this with you in heaven. There's a day coming when we will take the Lord's Supper in heaven with the Lord. Lord, we pray now as we go to this time that we will take this time to spend in your presence, to seek your face, to hear your heart, to know your will. We do this as an act of worship, a reminder of the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just hold on to the elements. We'll take them together.